Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning's meeting. Today is Sunday, August 18, 2013. The share ID number for Friday's meeting, August 16th, is 4960. That's 4960. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, group. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater here in Oregon. 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awaiting as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Yes. Thank you. I will now call on Marietta to read the 12 traditions. Hi, this is Marietta from Virginia Recovered. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself on our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, 
to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, lend the LA name to any related facility, outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relation policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and other public media of communication. And twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions. Ever remind us to place principles before personalities. And Marietta and I pass. Thank you, Marietta. Our whole journey through the 12 steps takes us to step 12. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Here with us this morning to carry this message of recovery, to share her experience, strength, and hope, and tell us about her story of transformation is Sally. Welcome to you, Sally. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for asking me to share my story. It's a privilege. This morning, my story begins at the age of eight years old. I have no memory before the age of eight years old and even no memory before the day that I will share first. I was uh, in a small public school working on a bulletin board when I heard a fire engine go down the block and I thought, I hope they're not going to my house. It was a few hours later that I was called to the principal's office and I found there my three siblings who were in that school. I come from a large family of seven children um, and a large Italian-American family from Pelham, New York, where I lived uh, in in New York for over 40 years. I um, went to that principal's office and there were, were two strangers there to meet my siblings and I. Um, a priest and a nun who I had never seen before, who took us and said that we were going to a surprise birthday party for the little boy who lived across the street from our house. When we got to this little boy's house, uh, we went in the back door, and there I found my parents crying and uh, my oldest brother crying, and I learned that my sister Peggy, five years old, had died in a fire. Because we had no home, our house was gutted out. We were... We children were all farmed out to different relatives. And um, I was sent to a relative who I did not remember ever meeting before. I learned as an adult that she was an alcoholic. And what happened was that she put me into a small room in front of a TV with a bowl of popcorn, a bag of candy, and um, a soda. And I remember thinking to myself, alone in that room in front of the TV, wow, this feels good. And that was the beginning of what I believe has been my eating career. Through the years, I I have had three sisters and um, very much were eating buddies. And I could tell many stories, but we'll just share one story of my childhood eating escapades. 
uh, with one of my sisters in the middle of the night uh, by the by the dark of the entire house, and um, the only light was the refrigerator and specifically the freezer door as my sister and I went to find this New York cheesecake that my mother had purchased and put into deep freeze for Christmas. And my sister, armed with a blow dryer and me with a very sharp serrated knife, uh, pulled that cheesecake out and worked diligently to chip at the cheesecake and eat about a third of it and then twirl it to the back, put it back in the bag, and push it back into the refrigerator. I don't remember my mother finding out. I'm sure that was not a happy day either. But um, I do know that there were many nighttime escapades with my sister. And, um, and that brings me to the age of 14. When I was 14, I tried out for the first time for the school play. I was just in ninth grade. And um, I went and tried out for the lead, Lori, in Oklahoma. And I'll never forget the director took me, she put her arm around me, and she took me away from everyone and walked me quietly down a hall in my high school. And she said, Sally, you should be Lori, but you're fat. So I can't give you that part. I was devastated. I don't know if I didn't know I was fat, but certainly I was devastated that fat was actually going to stop me from being and doing things I wanted. I left there that day and I went on a fast. I basically began that day opening a new bag of tricks. And in that bag, I put fasting. I fasted for over 40 days. I was uh, bulimic from that time on. I'm not sure of how I learned, but I'm pretty confident it was my mother from other things that have happened in my life. And um, so between fasting, bulimia, and binging, I somehow managed to get my weight down rather quickly. And um, I was then 132 pounds and maintaining my weight with these tools, fasting, bulimia, and then intermittently binging my brains out. I remember my dad, a medical doctor, saying one day, I love it when you kids go on a fast. The ice cream lasts so much longer. I look back and I think, wow, did he not have any concern? I, I have this memory of this young girl in our high school who was very overweight, and I remember watching as she lost weight and continued to lose weight and became absolutely cachectic. And then one day I heard she had died. And I learned later that she had died of anorexia. And it troubled me. It just troubled me. So I continued with these eating behaviors, fasting, bulimia. And uh, it was really like, because I had three sisters who were also fasting and my mom, it was um, a kind of a joke in our family that we were going to catch the Monday morning train. If you could get on that fast on Monday morning, you were golden. If you missed the Monday morning train of getting on the fast as a group, then you caught the Wednesday train. If you missed the Wednesday train, you were doomed to binge all the way to the next Monday. And I remember talking about this and thinking and giggling about this growing up with my siblings. Finally, I was 17 years old, continued to use these tools, and um, I went off to college. That was the uh, geographic cure for a new stepmother. I moved out to Indiana State University. And while I was in my first year of college, in the second half of that year, one late night, I was extremely naive as a 17-year-old. I went out for a little walk and was offered a ride by a total stranger. And I got into the car with that stranger. And that was a very bad night that I managed to survive. 
I um, remember going back to my dorm the next morning and saying to my mother, calling my mother and crying to my mother. And my mother said to me, Sally, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. They'll think you're a whore. And I, at that moment, I had a new identity. Oh, my goodness. I'm a whore now. And that's what I walked around thinking for a very long time. So here I was, 17. I left immediately at the end of that semester back to New York. Long story short, I very quickly found my husband. And within nine months, I married my husband. I was 19 the day we married. He was 20. We were married for 22 years. I married him for protection and for safety. I very soon had my first child, Samantha, six, six weeks after I got married. I was pregnant with my daughter, Samantha. And um, I went from the 132 pounds that I managed to maintain for so many years to 212 pounds during that nine-month pregnancy. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, this is how people get super obese. They can't use their tools anymore. Um, A few years later, 22 years old, 1982, I gave birth to my son, David. I had reached the high of 238, 39, somewhere in that range. I had really reached a bottom. I um, remember that he was was a home birth, and so the evening that he was born, um, my whole family came for Thanksgiving to my home. And I remember sitting at the table with my mother, very tearful. My sisters were all in the bedroom trying on each other's pants and giggling and, and just being together. But I was not with the crowd. I was, not, I was often not with them. I was in, my, in the dining room eating, binging. And my mother said to me, why don't you go to the bathroom, Sally? You'll feel better. You know what to do. I went to the bathroom. I turned on the water. I had a night light on. I lifted up the seat of the toilet, and just as I was about to get down on my knees, I heard this voice in my head, don't you dare. I didn't know what that meant. I reasoned, okay, maybe I'm going to choke to death if I do this. Maybe I'm going to hurt my voice, and being a singer, it mattered to me. I got up, I put that toilet seat down, I turned the water off, I walked out of the bathroom, I never did that again. My bulimia career ended from the age of 14 to 22. But the next morning, I did reach my jumping off point. Page 152 in the big book talks about this jumping off point. It was the first of many jumping off points. I laid on the kitchen floor face down and I cried out to God, Oh God, help me. I'm like an alcoholic. I don't know what this is, but please help me. It was just a day or two later that I got a phone call from a friend in my church inviting me to come to a meeting that she couldn't explain to me, but it was going to help me and that, I, that it would help my diet, what I would, that I'd be interested, I went. When I walked in the room, there was a big sign at the front of the room with a printing of the 12 steps. We were asked to stand up and read these steps. I stood up, and as I read the first line, we admitted we were powerless over food and that our lives had become unmanageable. I, I had this almost audible sigh. <gasps> oh, I'm in the right place. I can easily admit that I'm powerless. 
I, my life is unmanageable. I did not hear another step. I was just fixated on that first line, and I knew I was in the right place. I got a sponsor. I worked my steps. I did lose about 68 pounds with that sponsor. And when I journaled, I did not do the fourth step the way the big book prescribes. I journaled while I did that fourth step. And I want to share a marked moment. I remember sitting at my kitchen table. I was eating cottage cheese. I often marvel at what a horrible memory I have, but I remember exactly what I ate years and years and years ago. I was eating cottage cheese, and I was writing in my journal, and suddenly I burped. And with the burp came the memory of that frightening night when I was 17 in Indiana State. And right away I thought, oh, my goodness, I cannot tell her this. Nobody knows this. Not my sisters, no friends, not my father. Nobody knows, only my mother. I cannot tell her this. I called her immediately. I said, I can't talk. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this four-step thing. I'm so sorry I've wasted your time. She said, Sally, stop. Top. Tell me now, Sally. You're only as sick as your secrets. Tell me now. I told her. I told her right then and there. And the healing did begin. I was in OA for over 30 years. And through those years in OA, I had many years. I had months of abstinence, white-knuckling abstinence. I had weeks of abstinence. Back and forth, abstinent, not abstinent. They would say, get on the wagon. I was off the wagon. I used to use that term. It was easier than saying the word abstinent, not abstinent. Wagon, off the wagon. And, you know, I, I took a little inventory on the 10 rounds that I went with food because it has really been, for me, like a boxing ring, getting back in the rink and getting beaten up to a pulp. And my eating history, round one, Weight Watchers, the first time, it was walking into a room, standing in front of a crowd, getting weighed, and then I left that room. I went straight to Carvel thinking, oh, I'll just have my last hurrah. Straight to Carvel, straight to get my favorite candy. Well, I was supposed to get on Weight Watchers the next day, but instead I was binging. I binged three days in a row. Then I panicked. I'm going to get weighed again. I went on my fast. I fasted for the next four days until I walked into that meeting. I went to the front of the room. They weighed me. I lost an eighth of a pound. They applauded. I stood there thinking, this is not going to work. Round two, diet pills. I am hyper normally without them. With them, I was nuts. That lasted only one week. Round three, the Synthroid diet. I had a friend who was a medical doctor. I convinced her, I have a, a low metabolism. If I could just have the Synthroid, could I at least try the Synthroid? I should have been a used car salesman. I convinced her to give me Synthroid. She put me on the Synthroid. I only was on it for two days. I had the same reaction that I had to the diet pills. I was extremely hyper. I just felt like my skin was crawling, and I immediately stopped the Synthroid. I've used medications many times for my career in eating. I used Lasix when I was going to get weighed in to make sure I reached the lowest numbers, combined with coffee enemas to make sure I got the lowest number I could possibly get. Squeaky clean. Then came round four, Jenny Craig. Jenny Craig is interesting. They give you a, a dessert every single night for the whole week. Of course, I wasn't stupid. I picked the cheesecake seven nights in a row. And then I ate all the cheesecake the second night that I was in Jenny Craig. I knew that wasn't going to work. Round five, Weight Watchers Part Two, the point system. 
I went to Weight Watchers, determined, I even paid for eight weeks of Weight Watchers, determined to actually do what they said. I was reading the books and discussing it. I had some people that I was going to work with in terms of teaching me how does this thing work. It wasn't four or five days later that I was eating 23 points of ice cream. Why not? I'm staying in the system. I'll just eat the ice cream through the day. Round six, controlled portions, Klondike bars, 100-calorie cookies, that didn't work because often the controlled portions of the Klondike bars just flew me right into bigger and better ice cream stores. Round seven, no no restrictions. Eat as much as you want. Cool Whip, you want Cool Whip? I ate Cool Whip morning till night. Eat all the Cool Whip you want because you're going to trick your body that you're going to give it what it wants. Finally, you're going to stop restricting. That was the diet. That was the book. It's still out there. I don't recommend it. Round eight. CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I went first to learn to the Beck Institute, the creator of the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy System developed by Dr. Beck. I went and learned from the Beck Institute. Then I got a Cognitive Behavioral Therapist to work with me who would show me that it wasn't going to change anything. My thinking was not going to affect any change in what was happening to me. Round nine, my primary care physician, please let me have the left band. I'm 100 pounds overweight. They say you lose 75 pounds. It's a great head start. What's wrong with me having the left band? Sally, go to Home Depot, buy a roll of duct tape, and stop eating. You don't have anything else wrong with you. You're just, you're just heavy. You need to lose the weight. You have to have two things wrong with you. You have to have diabetes or a heart disease or something. You don't have anything. Okay. That was round nine. Round ten. Round 10, I actually consider being in OA for 30 years. And honestly, it was like wandering in the desert. Yes, I had years of abstinence, five years of abstinence at one point until the mental twist started up. And one day I walked into the cafeteria at Syracuse University while I was becoming a nurse. And I had this thought, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. Why don't I just take flour back? Forget about the sugar. I'll just take the flour back. So I bought one piece of pizza, and as I walked out the door, my higher power, in his gracious mercy, sent someone, someone I had never seen at that school, who I had seen weekly at a meeting, walked directly toward me, and she said, what are you doing? I said, it's too hard. I can't, I can't plan. It's too hard with school. It's just too hard. And she said, you better get yourself to a meeting. I walked away, the same old defiant Sal, and I ate that piece of pizza. And with that piece of pizza came a 100-pound weight gain in the next 10 years. I had reached a new bottom. How long can I go on? My sister, this was another jumping-off point, page 152. I remember my sister saying to me, don't worry, Sally, you'll lose it again. Reminds me so much of Bill's story. The market would recover, but I would not. Page 8. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. Food was my winner. Food was the winner. I was the heavyweight. I had been overwhelmed. I finally returned to OA. Very, very humbling to go back to OA 100 pounds up. And I'll never forget walking into that room thinking, this doesn't work. It's the last house in the block, and the last house in the block doesn't work. 
and a kind person in the meeting came to me. She had scribbled a phone number on a piece of paper. She handed it to me in the palm of my hand. She closed my hand over it. She said, Sally, go on this phone number tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. Trust me on this. Just do it. I went on that phone the next morning, and I wept. I cried for a long time as I listened. I cried throughout the after meeting. I cried as I heard the words spoken. Recovered. Recovered? Yeah, recovered. And so I found the tent in the backyard behind the last house on the block. And in that tent were a bunch of people with their big books sprawled out on the ground with flashlights in hand, studying the big book, learning together about this disease that I have, a disease that is equaled to cancer. Page 18 tells us, I'm going to go to that page very quickly. Page 18 in the big book says it's like this. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it, there goes annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life. My disease was likened to cancer in this book. And as cancer patients go into remission, we go into recovered, recovered, past tense recovered. When I heard that word recovered and I read it on the first page of the first page of the forward, I thought, oh my gosh, I may not be able to be cured, but I can become recovered. I want this thing. I need this thing. So, of course, I got a recovered sponsor. That's the first thing we do. I got a beautiful, precious, warm, gentle, recovered sponsor to work with me. And we began. And she worked with me. We read together. We talked together. I started my steps with her. For two months, I was abstinence, working my steps. And then I went to New York to visit my children. My kids all live in New York, where I'm from. And hi, I am down here in South Jersey. I went to New York, and while I was there, I took a deep dive back into the food. Came home. I called my sponsor. Sheepishly, I told her. I broke my abstinence. She said, okay, Sally, let's start again. Come on. She was so gentle. We did it again. Two more months of abstinence. I went to New York to visit my children. I dove back into the food. I came home. She said to me gently, Sally, I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to help you. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, don't tell me the last tent is not going to help. But then I got a second recovered sponsor. She didn't have any children, so she had no qualms about telling me, you can't visit your children. She, I learned about page 102, the top of the page, go or stay away whichever seems best, but be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in going is thoroughly good. And so I learned that I could not afford to go and visit my children until I was on solid spiritual ground. And so I did not see my children for four months. And when I did see my children, I went, I drove all the way to New York, I met them in Lincoln Center for three hours, and I went straight back home because I still knew I wasn't ready to see my kids because for some reason they were a trigger. I began reading the big book. This new sponsor had said to me, I'm going to Russia for two weeks. 
And I've had people call me on my phone many times and say, well, how do we stay abstinent when we aren't reaching recovered yet? How do we do that when we're getting started? Well, this is how I did it because that was the case that I was confronted with. I came to my sponsor with about 10 days of abstinence. My sponsor announced, I'm going to Russia for two weeks. When I get back, this is what I require. You'll need to see a nutritionist, get a food plan. You'll need to type up a trigger food list so it's in concrete. That's what it is. You're not going to flip and flop about what's on it, what shouldn't be on it. Maybe it's not on it this week. I want it in writing and mail it to me. Then I want you to read the big book. That's what the big book says. I said, oh, my goodness, I thought to myself, this sounds like a hazing for like some kind of college sorority house. I have to read this? I didn't say it out loud, but I did actually mention it to her. Is this something that is just like your thing, or is this actually in the book? She said, Sally, turn with me to page 95. It says here, I'm going to turn there now, if he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. And then on page 96, suppose now you are making your second visit to the man. He has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. And so she said, read the book, and then we'll start working. And so I was abstinent, making many, many phone calls, looking to the recovered people, reading the big book. I did it in 10 days. She gave, she gave me two weeks. She said, you've got two weeks. I'll be back in two weeks. I was so afraid that I wouldn't make that deadline that I read it in 10 days. And thus began my work in the big book. And here's why I want to begin, what I've learned and what's happened to me because of this big book, this precious, I believe, inspired by God big book. The big book talks to me about shame. I've talked to you about page 18 and the illness that we have that is likened to cancer. No longer did I have to live in shame. Now I was beginning to understand that I had a twofold illness. And I'll talk about that more. I want to say that the big book addressed my fear on page 62, driven by 100 forms of fear, and page 68, my self-reliance versus my God-reliance. The whole page talks about this. And herein was the, the key, the, the kingpin of my arch of recovery was my self-reliance as opposed to my God-reliance. You see, my trust levels were broken in men and in women and I just didn't trust anybody but me, and my self-reliance was very broken. My power button was just faulty. I like to look at it like this. It's almost like you put two, two big buttons on your counter right in front of you. It's an empty counter. There's a button there that is broken. It's got a wire attached to it, and the wire is detached because... It can't work because I'm too sick for it to work. I can't go to the button. I can't get any answers from that. But I also have this option. I can go to my God. And that is working very effectively to go to my God. The big book got to the root of my problem. And that root is found on page 98. It took me many readings of this page over the course of a year to recognize me. It says in the middle of 98, some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. That would be me and maybe you. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn like cattle branded by God so that we know who we belong to. 
burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well, that we can get well, regardless of anyone, even me. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. And that's where I began my steps with my sponsor. We started with, with page one. We read line upon line. We met 5.30 in the morning until 7.30 in the morning. We read to 7, I'm sorry, 6.30 in the morning. We read because we were both on the line at 7 o'clock from that point on. I was on, uh, I had a phone call that was so cute. Somebody called me and she said, I don't understand. Where did you come from? You just sort of appeared. I said, yeah, I was there all that time. My sponsor said, don't you dare go on that line. You're not allowed to speak until you are recovered. You do not speak. And I say it to you, Sally, to protect you. You're not ready to get on that line. I want you to present the best you. Wait until you recover to speak on that line. And so I did. I waited 10 months to go on the line. I was recovered at 9, but I was a little too scared to get on before then. And so we started the steps. And when we got to the steps 1, 2, and 3 in the book, I had this really this attitude of, had this attitude of oh, this is not a problem. We're ready. I can, I can move on. I'm, I'm done. I've got this down. I've, I've been in a relationship with God for years. But my sponsor wisely recognized something was wrong. And so she said to me, Sally, I don't know what's wrong, but I want you to start writing letters. I want you to write a letter to God every morning, and I want you to send it to me. Send it to me over the email, and then I will read it, and possibly I'll be able to figure out what it is that's wrong. And I wrote my letters, and I want to read to you one of those early letters one just like an early letter. Dear God, I am only writing to you because my sponsor asked me to. I know you're there, so no problem with that. I've seen too many miracles to doubt you are my creator and more important that you are there. The thing is, God, I'm mad at you. When I went through my divorce, I asked you to stop this from happening. You did crazy miracles for others. The woman who prayed for her husband, he had a heart attack. And when he woke up, he was a changed man. I met this man. He was a changed man. The story of the husband who was so mean to his wife, and she prayed for him. He fell down in the bathroom, hit his head, had a seizure. When he woke up, he was a new man, and he was so sweet to his wife. I prayed at 5 a.m. in the morning for years for my husband. He's no different today. I prayed for my brother. You let him die. I prayed for my mother. I fasted in prayer for her many days. I went down to 118 pounds begging you as I was only 25 years old with three small babies, and I needed her. I loved her so much. There are no words for my love for my mother. You dropped the ball. She was only 58 when she died, but you let my mother die. And so many times I have tried to give you other chances, only to be disappointed. It seems a waste of time, but I really need you to know and I have no choice, as I can't do this for myself. You've got me over a barrel, God, so I'm begging you. Please help me to believe that you care and that I'm not wasting my time asking you for your help. Your daughter, Sally. That was my letter to God. The steps, to continue going through these steps, and I, I guess I really want to stop at steps eight and nine, because steps eight and nine were my balking point. Um, the big book talks about our balking points on uh, page 58. At some of these, we balked. I was, um, 
I have a big mouth, so I have to write 89 amends because I've done a lot of damage with my tongue. And let me just stop here and say that that's why this little, this little thing here in uh, step 10, which I, of course, have not gotten to yet, but I do want to share it here. This is something that my sponsor, she must have said it to me at least 20 times in the course of the year that we worked together. She would say, restraint of pen and tongue, Sally. Restraint of tongue and pen. The step 10, page 91 in the 12 and 12 says, our first objective will be to develop a development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. This carries a top priority rating. When we speak or act hastily or rashly, the ability to be fair-minded and tolerant evaporates on the spot. One unkind tirade or one willful snap judgment can ruin our relationship with another person for a whole day or maybe a whole year. In my case, maybe a whole lifetime. Nothing pays off like restraint of pen and tongue, page 91 of the 12 and 12. I needed to hear that over and over. It was an important principle that I had to learn. And that is why steps eight and nine were so hard. She was step Steps four and five, yeah, it was a lot of work. Yeah, I had to, I had to tell it to one, one lone stranger in a faraway state that I had to tell all of my, uh, my resentments and my, my willfulness and my fear of the future and not getting my own way and my sex conduct. I couldn't handle one lone person in a faraway state. But steps eight and nine, 89 amends to all those people, that was definitely a balking point. It took me two months to get through steps eight and nine because 89 letters are not easy to write, but also because I had a sponsor who kicked back my letters on a regular basis and said, rewrite, rewrite it, and don't ask them to forgive you. You're not going to them to ask them for anything. You are only going to ask them what you can do to make amends to them. My amends included $500 to a friend who I promised, if I can come up with this money, I'll lend you some money or I'll send you some money. I know you need the money. Big mouth. My sponsor was right. She's going to put your money where your mouth is. And that way you'll think twice before you just open your mouth and offer to help somebody. I sent her $500. I stole a piece of coral when I was a little kid, 12 years old. I was a big thief as a child. I, I can't even go into the capers. But I did steal a piece of coral, not a small piece of coral, a coral that was like a foot and a half by a foot and a half from a guy who was a, um, a deep-sea diver and was staying in a little shack behind this beautiful hotel that my parents had us staying in in Jamaica. And so he said, I'm going to give you a piece of coral when you leave. Well, he wasn't around when I was leaving, so I took the one I thought was the best one for me. And that was the one I took. How could I make amends to this guy? My sponsor was brilliant. She said, you'll give money to your favorite charity. And so I gave money to Mystic for my little, for my little penguins who I love. I wrote a letter to my brother, John, my brother who died of hemophilia. He had contracted AIDS because of his medicine. When he was 42, year, 42 years old, he had uh, died of AIDS. And before he died of AIDS, for two months, he was um, aware that he had AIDS. We all were. And it was... It was very sad because we didn't know how to get AIDS. And so I, fearful of getting AIDS, pulled back my love and my support for this very precious brother who was much like a father to me out of my fear of getting AIDS. And when, I didn't, when we didn't know what it was about, he was treated like a leper, even by me. And because he knew himself he was being treated like a leper, he said, I don't want to live like this. He didn't take any of the meds. He died within two, year, two months 
And so I wrote him a, a very tearful letter because I had a lot of guilt that I carried, a lot of shame about my treatment of my brother. Step 10, step 11, and step 12 is where I live, on the land, the island of Recovered, an island that, yes, is in the middle of great cities, but I'm here with all of my recovered friends. And um, step 10, I sing my prayers. I put step 3 and step 7 to music, and I sing regularly my, my prayers in the morning and also sometimes in the dark just before I go to sleep. I ask God to remove three defects daily. I look at my list. I have a list that I carry in my iPhone of my, my defects of character. As I, as I was creating the list with my sponsor, I put them right into my phone. And may I add that when I was creating the list and I finished making the list and I read the list to my sponsor, she very wisely said to me, Sally, you're missing a few defects. And I, of course, was you know, a little sensitive. What do you mean? That, I got a long list here. She said, Sally, you, you didn't put on your list and it should be at the very top of your list. You play God. Also, you waffle. Well, that was now on my list. And um, I, I find also that as I do steps 10, 11, 12, the, the words of the book come back to me. I think about, you know, I watch, I lay in my bed at night as I'm going to sleep and I think about, have you been selfish today? Have you been dishonest at any, at any point? Have you been resentful? Have you been fearful? What, what has happened what, what about your thinking, about what you've actually done? And a lot of times I will, take, I will open the light and I will write about it. Sometimes in the morning I will call my sponsor and I'll 10 step in the morning just quickly talk with her about it. Um, when these crop up, it tells us we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly. This is on page 84. I continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, which is step four. When, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Step seven, we discuss them with someone immediately. Step five, and make amends quickly. Steps eight and nine. These are two principles that I've come to live by um, because of the, the studies I've done in the big book. And they're found on page 412, four, I'm sorry, 420. And it comes from the chapter in this book, Acceptance is the Answer, back on 400. Page 412, 20. I keep saying, I'm sorry. Acceptance was the answer. The bottom of page 420, acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. This is a huge thing for me. You know, I want to just tell you that my sponsor was on my resentment list because every time she'd flip out these words, very, very like, oh, and by the way, before I go, I just want to tell you, read that chapter again, okay? Go back and read that chapter again. Oh, my goodness. I am extremely busy. Read that chapter again equals 45 minutes of my life. It only took you three seconds to spit that out. Read that chapter again. Okay, I'll read it again. I read it about five times in the course of going through my steps. And here is the crux for me. Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. Acceptance. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, I do whatever is in front of me to be done. And I leave the results up to him. I surrender the outcomes. These two concepts come to my mind every day. I embrace them as if they were my legs. One leg is that I will accept whatever God brings to me. It goes on to say I must keep my magic magnifying glass on my acceptance and off my expectations for my serenity is directly proportional to my level of acceptance when i remember this i can see i've never had it so good 
So now I just want to end having having shared those two precious principles that are just like my legs. I want to share about the, the, the gifts that the program has brought me very briefly, the miracles that have happened in my life because of this um, this program. To begin with my dad, I did not see my dad for 12 years, 12 long years. And do you know that when it came time to make amends, I wasn't even ready to make the amends. All I did was start to call my dad once every two weeks because I knew that's what he wanted from me, just for me to call him and say, hi, dad. I didn't think he deserved me calling him at all, but I did it. I called him and I said, hi, dad. And I talked with him. It was brief at first. It got longer and longer. Eventually, I invited my, I asked my daughter, Diana, to invite my dad to her wedding. And she did. He, my dad came to my daughter's wedding this last weekend of June, this, this just past um, June. And it was the first time that I had seen my dad in 12 years. And it was the first time my sisters had seen my dad in many, many, many years. And there was a lot of healing. And since the wedding, my dad has called me two times. And he has said to me, Sally, will you visit me here in Florida? Will you please come and visit me? And the second time, the first time I didn't know what to say. I just said, okay, Dad, I'll think about it. Let me pray about it. The, the second time I said, okay, Dad, I'll come. I don't know when, but I will come. You know, in the past when I was um, in my 20s and 30s, I used to write my dad letter bombs. That's what my sisters called them. Oh, my gosh, you're going to give him another letter bomb. They would read the letter first because I want them to, you know, say, is this unfair? Should I not say this? No, it's totally true. It's fair. One of my sisters was a nurse at that time, and she said, but you really would be only kind if you would attach a vial of epinephrine to that envelope so poor dad could revive himself when he finishes reading it. Those were my letter bombs that I sent to my dad. But now I practice restraint of pen and of tongue in, in all of my affairs, when I'm texting, when I'm emailing, when I'm writing a letter, when I'm writing a card, restraint of pen and tongue. I... Another miracle I've had is that I can now kayak. I have a kayak that I could never use for years because you have to be under 200 pounds to kayak. And I had climbed to 250 pounds. But now here I sit, I'm about 175 pounds. I do have to lose more weight, yes. But since June 14th of last year, and because my body is badly burned, I have a very slow metabolism from all the fasting. And um, I'm, I'm content. I, I don't get on the scale um, Maybe once every three or four months I'll get on the scale because when I get on the scale, something terrible happens. I either get on the scale and I'm too happy. That happiness shrivels away as I see that I've lost weight. I suddenly start to, my brain starts to do this tick 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 Oh, my gosh, you're losing your armor because fat was my armor. I put that weight on so that men wouldn't look at me so that I wouldn't be confronted anymore with my lack of boundaries and my lack of good judgment. So I put that fat on to protect me, and I'm taking that off. Every time I would lose 10 pounds, I would cry until I stopped looking. I just didn't want to see it anymore. And that's part of my surrendering the outcome, surrendering the outcome of this program. Um, other things that I've had that have been blessings for me because of this program is uh, there's a change in me. I used to be a fighter. 
I actually wrote a song that starts, I used to be a fighter. And it was, even every time I'd sing it, my sister and I would look at each other and sort of giggle because we both knew I was still a fighter. Um, but, you know, the book talks to us repeatedly about not cease fighting anyone, anything, and even the food. Page, I want to just give you these three wonderful places in case you have the same fighting issues that I have. Page 84, the bottom of the page, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. On page 98 and on page 103, it also talks about cease fighting, cease fighting, put the white flag up. I have ceased fighting, and if I sense that somebody's going to fight with me, I immediately check myself. I can't keep them from saying or doing what they're going to do, but I know that I am going to have restraint of pen and tongue or just leave and say, you know, I think we need a break here. Um, You know, I guess I just want to be sure to end by saying that I've learned in this last year, since June 14th, that I have really worked diligently on on these steps. I have come to learn the problem very clear and concisely. Page 42 talks about the strange, strange mental blank spot. And I say this for the newcomer. I hope that you'll note these pages. Page 42 talks about the strange mental blank spots that we develop. Page 24, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week ago or a month. We are defenseless against the first bite. And an allergy of the body, XX. V-I-I-I, talks about the cycle of restlessness, irritable, discontent, the ease and the comfort that comes over us when we take that first bite and we pass through the well-known stages of a spree, a binge, whatever you want to call it, emerging remorseful, emerging as if out of a fog with a firm resolution not to drink again. And this is repeated over and over and over. This describes me the werewolf in me that would start at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I'd pick up the food, pick up the first bite after being relentlessly hearing the thoughts in my mind. Oh, you're not going to make it today. You may as well wait till Monday. You're not going to do it today. Oh, it's Saturday night. Forget about it today. i pick up the food, go into complete binging, wake up the next morning, and practically in a fetal position, naked and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what just happened? I used to think this was PTSD, PTSD until I found out about page, um, that page in the back of the book. I believe it's, um, I don't have it written down here, but it talks about the four horsemen, and that certainly was exactly what I was experiencing every single morning. What did I do yesterday? Oh my gosh, I definitely moved. I must have gained 10 pounds yesterday. This is, where is this going to end? These were my waking first moment thoughts that describes the problem the solution and i am coming to the end because i want to share with you page 100 this is my one of my favorite places both you and the new man must walk day by day top of page 100 both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress if you persist Remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Page 25, as somebody most preciously put into, um, said at one of our meetings, 
hidden in a chapter called There is a Solution, right next to a sentence in italics that says, there is a solution. What a funny thing. They hid the solution right there in the chapter and in the italic section. I just loved when that was said. Page 25, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful culmination. And so it talks about the steps and these steps that take us to the solution. Finally, at the lower in the page, the central fact of our lives today, the central fact of my life today, is the absolute certainty that my creator has entered into my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for me which I could never do by myself. It's a Cinderella story. I start every morning fresh. Every morning I start up. And it's like, you know, you continue to grow. You bring things that you learned yesterday. It's a little like the movie Groundhog Day. You learn a little bit yesterday. You bring it to your next day. And you just start again. And you continue to bathe your mind with the truth. That's what this is. Somebody said to me last week on the phone, aren't you guys being brainwashed? Just the way he said to me. And I said, no. I like to think of it as being brain flushed. I am being brain flushed. My brain is being, instead of being pickled in my, in my disease, my brain is being flushed, being cleansed from the truth of what this program is showing me, what has always been true about who I am. And I will end with this, page 98. There are many keys, and others may find other keys to be their primary master key. But my master key is page 98. And I want to end there. Job or no job, whatever your circumstances, wife or no wife, sponsor or no sponsor at this second in time. Not to say you don't need to get one, but at this moment if you don't have one, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn like cattle so that you know who you belong to. Brand, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone, even yourself. The only condition is that you trust in God and clean house. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. With that, I pass. Thank you very much, Sally, for your story of transformation this morning, and thank you for describing your personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Now we invite anyone who would like to ask a question Regarding, regarding what Sally shared this morning or anything related to the program of recovery, you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi. Hello. Um, my name's Lori from New Jersey. I have a question. Lori, go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Sally, for sharing everything you did. I got so much out of it, your qualification. Um, I just wanted you to clarify one thing. You said recovered. I might not be able to be cured, but I can be recovered. Can you just, I don't know, explain that comment to me? Yes, that I'd, be happy Thank to, you. I'd be happy to explain that comment to you. I did liken this. On page 18, it talked about how our disease is likened to cancer. And so let me just start by saying that sometimes patients who have, I'm, I'm a nurse, I'm a hospice nurse, 
And so I, I think very medically. And so when I look at this page 18 and see how it talks about becoming, becoming uh, having cancer and likening my disease to cancer and understanding that there are many people out there who have cancer who are in remission. They are not cured, but they are in remission. And like them, I have a compulsive disorder. And when you go to page I don't know where that static's coming from, but it's not me. Can you all hear me still? Yes. Okay, thank you, Leah. XIII, the top of the page, it says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than recovered. I'm sorry, more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That's what it says. And it says it again and again throughout the next few pages. If you will be so kind to read these pages, these opening pages, you will see over and over the word is used, recovered. Does that mean that I can become cured? No. I don't believe that is the case because I know that I have that strange mental twist. I have that mental blank spot that I've talked about, page 42 and 24, that talk about this mental part of how our, our brain has got some kind of strange defect of that, uh, this mental obsession that's talked about in this first chapter here of, of um, the doctor's opinion. And it's, I, I recommend that you read the doctor's opinion. Just read the doctor's opinion and learn about this, this concept of recovery um, to becoming recovered, and learn about your learn about your illness. And so, I would um, just want to leave you with that. I know I can say more. And Leah, would you want to add to that, Leah? Because I don't want to just keep bringing her to different words to talk about recovered. But in all honesty, something happened to me, and I do want to say this: when I finished step nine, when I finished the action steps. At first, I didn't know, am I recovered? And I started to look at myself. Did I change? Is something different? And it took about two weeks for me to begin to realize it had really lifted. I did become recovered. And yes, I have to continue to keep the food down. I look at it like this. I've got this, I've got this thing inside me. It's the allergy of my body. I don't want to kick it awake. If I eat even the slightest amount of sugar, I'm like playing with its nose, this crazy thing inside me. I'm twirling its tail. I'm tapping on its foot. Waking it up is not the right thing to do. I want to keep my physical allergy asleep. And then I've got this mental obsession that continually is there. Thank God, what happened when I became recovered and I took all of these action steps is that I came to a place where I had peace. I, was, I don't have the same triggers because I know, I know what, is, what is in my brain, not just what is on my mind, but what is in my brain. I know what's up there, so there are many less triggers coming at me. And if somebody says something to me or, or does something to me or I, I have a memory, a little tape goes across my mind and I'm reminded of something that's upsetting, it doesn't have the same force that it used to have. And I believe that's part of what steps four through nine do in, in uncovering the many things that we're carrying in our brain that have been triggering us and throwing us into the food, not to negate the power of the mental obsession that we live with as part of our illness and the physical allergy. So with that, I pass. Thank you, Sally, and thank you, Lori, for the question. Anyone 
else have a question this morning? Star one to unmute. I think I've shocked everyone into silence. <laughs> they're, Hello? they're contemplating. Yes, good morning. Go ahead. Hello. Good morning, everybody. This is me. Hello? One hello, moment, please. I hear Nancy, I believe, and then who's who's saying hello? That was me. I was talking, but you couldn't hear me, Michelle. Michelle. Sorry. Hi, Michelle. So let's go Nancy and then Michelle, please. Nancy, go ahead. Nancy, star one to unmute. Hello? Okay. Yes, go ahead. I'm, okay. My question has to do with, um, you said that you were praying, you, you when you had to uh, talk about or uh, you were writing about your, um, why did God not save your brother, your family, other family members, and now I'm going to ask you for um, basically recovery. How Can you speak a little bit more about how you negotiated? Why did you mm. let, you know, you know what I'm trying, I, I can't really yes. articulate I, I it. Hope I, I hope I understand your question. Um, can I speak more about how the healing process went through those letters? Is that what you're asking me? Well, well how did you, you know, um, I guess to a certain extent, yes, but it's to me there's like a contradiction there. Why did God let something didn't heal in one circumstance but will heal in another? And that that's a hang-up for me, and I want to know how you um, reconciled those two contradictions. Yeah. Okay. Um that was, for me, a, t- a tough place to be um, for many years. And um, I guess what I, what I would like to say here is that I was blocked. I was blocked from God because of many of the circumstances in my life. Um, how did that work for me? I mean, how? I'm, I'm still a little unclear of your question. Are you, um, are you asking me to talk about the blocked part of this? Or can you can you clarify that question? Well, um, I guess um, how, in one circumstance, you know, God didn't heal, um, didn't save people, um, and in the other, you're asking God to heal uh, your addiction or your compulsions, and to me, it's it seems like a contradiction and how in your head did you get over the fact that there are some circumstances where you're not going to, God is not going to, I guess, go your way. And oh, okay. How, how did you over, I think I yeah, how did you, okay. Okay. Let me tell you that I wrote many letters to God and in the process of writing these letters to God, what, First of all, at there came a point where I wrote a letter to God, and I said those same words again, I'm mad at you. And I, I listened, I meditated quietly, and I listened. And what I heard was, I know. And that was an important day for me. 
I just really believed that God knew that I was mad. And how I reconciled was this. In the process of writing those letters, I began to take responsibility for my divorce. I stopped blaming God for the husband that I chose, the husband that I had prayed frantically before I even married him. Please, God, don't let this happen. Show me if I'm not supposed to do this, if you only knew how hard I prayed because I did not want to go through a divorce in my life because I had seen horrible divorces, including my parents. And so when I went through that divorce that I did not want, I was devastated that God allowed it to happen. And what I learned in the process is that I had to take responsibility. I married a man I barely knew. I married him because I needed safety and protection from men. I married him to rescue me in all honesty. I'm not sure I ever was in love with my husband. I know I needed him. Now, can I blame God for that divorce anymore once I reach a level of honesty with God, which I had to? And God helped me to reach that level of honesty in writing those letters. I had to start thinking, is there any part of this that's my responsibility so I can stop blaming God for everything that goes wrong in my life? What can I take responsibility for? I can take responsibility for the fact that I married my husband he was a rescue, a parachute. I was somebody flying out of a plane without a parachute, and I saw a parachute running along me, and it was my husband, and I attached myself to him to rescue me. And so that's how I resolved that particular pain. My mother dying at the age of 58, yeah, that was a tough one, a very tough one. And you know how I resolved that and the death of my brother? Simply with those principles found in that, pet, in that, in that last page, 420. Acceptance was the answer. I decided that I would let God be God. That I would stop telling God, you're doing a crummy job up there. I'm not really happy with your performance. I might have to fire you. In fact, I've already fired you. But you know what? God knows what he's doing. He's much bigger than me. I'm very little, and my little brain doesn't know exactly what God has in mind. There were... Some, some very important miracles that came out of my mom's death, including my parents' reconciliation, to the extent that my dad sent my mother roses every week the last year of her life, six red roses, one white rose to indicate my little sister Peggy. My dad took care of her. As a doctor, he, he told his friends, this is my wife. Even though he was remarried with new children, he took care of my mother. He made the last year of my mother's life incredible. God is a good God. I just was looking at all the bad stuff that I didn't like. When it comes to my brother's death, I could go on with more miracles. The fact of the matter is, I was blaming God, and I pushed God out of my life, and God didn't even have to do anything. I wanted to play God. When you look at page 68, take a good look at page 68. It talks about self-reliance versus God-reliance. That's what I had to learn. That's the only way I was going to get well, and that's the only way. As I, you see, my, my reliance leaned on, oh, I can get very heavy, I can gain 100 pounds, and then men won't look at me, and then I can be safe. That was my reliance on me. Or I can trust my higher power, and I can trust in these promises. We will intuitively know what to do, and perhaps I won't find myself in places where I shouldn't be doing things I shouldn't be. And so that's, that's the only answer I can give to you is that it's a process. This nine steps 
uh, this 12 steps, I say nine only because these first nine steps are a process of you developing first, getting right with your relationship with God. And page 29. Sally, star one to unmute. Page 29 tells us that that's what this is really all about, is developing steps one through three to me are this sentence, page 29. Each individual in the personal story describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. And that's what it's about. And not just steps one, two, and three. I just say that that's the beginning of the establishing a relationship with God. That's what these steps are about. It was a process. I didn't reach nirvana or reach, you know, the land of recovered, obviously, when I finished writing these letters. But I became unblocked. And that was important for me to be able to continue working through the steps. That's the answer I've got. Thank you for letting me share that, I guess. So. Thank you, Nancy, for the question. Now we move on to Michelle. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. That was amazing, Sally. So so insightful. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I have two quick questions. The first is you talked about how your sponsor walked you through the steps. Could you describe how you walk your sponsees through the steps? And also, uh, the second question is, when you did your writing daily, did you have a theme daily that you wrote about, or did you just kind of freeform write? Thank you, and I pass. Okay, can you hear me, Leah? Yes. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, I walk my sponsors, my sponsees, rather, through the steps uh, very similarly to the way my sponsor walked with me through the steps. My sponsor, when I finished step nine, um, was unable to continue working with me because of her job and the, the amount of traveling she was doing. And so she uh, encouraged me to get another sponsor who I work with presently. And so I, I basically am blessed that I have the opportunity because I've had three recovered sponsors. I've had the opportunity to learn and to assimilate three different sponsors' um, way of, uh, of of growing and, and working with Sponsees. So first of all, I work. I work with my sponsees. I will not. I will not work with somebody as a sponsee who is not willing to read uh, the very first page of the forward through page 196. I know many people do work with sponsees. All they have to do is something else. But what I require to work with a sponsee because of page 95 and 96 is that if they want to work with me, they must first pick up this book. They can read it. They have two weeks to read it. If they have teenagers, they can have three weeks. If they have children under five, they can have four weeks. And that is the first thing I tell them. If you want to work with me, you have to read that through page 164. I consider it like a college professor. You have to read the assignment, and then we'll read it together and look more closely at it. That's number one. Number two, when I work with my sponsees, I truly try to um, develop with them. Um, I, I clear away the food. I tell them they have to see a nutritionist, be sure they have a food plan that's working, and um, ask them to type up a trigger food list, much like my sponsor had asked me to do. And then we sit down, and to be honest with you, one sponsee I started working with, um, she's on step four, and we, we meet together three times a week for about 45 minutes to an hour. And um, 
the uh, the other sponsees that I have, I'm doing something unique, and um, for the first time, I'm doing a three-way phone call with two sponsees who are on the line with me, and we work together as a team. They can call me at different various times just to talk to me, as they do, and we will work together until we reach step four. When we reach step four, the action steps, we will split off, and we will work individually on those steps, and that is something that I'm doing at this time. As far as your second question, freeform writing, um, to be quite honest with you, I was using those letters specifically to become unblocked. And so I was um, at the end of you know having my morning devotional, which I do, I would sit down and um, pull up my computer because I was going to send the letters and start writing the letters. Just whatever came to me, you know, based on whatever I had done in my morning uh, devotional and whatever came to me, whatever my emotions were, I just tried to be completely honest with God. If I, you know, I said things to God that I honestly had to sort of like, sh- you know, push away, like, oh gosh, I hope I'm not going to get struck by lightning for that one. But I just, I'm so convinced that God knows us. He knows our thinking. So you may as well be honest with Him because this is the solution. You know, we know the problem. And that's the solution. So I have to take the risk because I'm not willing to live like that anymore. And so I took the risk. And um, I just, I guess, you know, where I just want to just mention, you know, out of writing these letters, that I came to a point where I thought, I'm good. I, I think I've really, you know, I'm unblocked. I'm talking to God. I, I'm not feeling the anger. I'm, I'm good with the acceptance. I'm finally really beginning to understand that it's none of my business. Um, I'm learning, you know, to surrender the outcomes, that, that it's God's business, not mine. And, um, but my sponsor wasn't letting me go forward. And so here again, I had to surrender the outcome of the timing of working my steps. And I had to do that many times, believe me. Um, and so I did not say a word to my sponsor because my sponsor is so smart. If I would have said one word about, I think I'm ready, she would have said, I don't think so. Instead, I prayed. I just said, God, I think I'm ready. Maybe you don't think I'm ready, so I'm going to leave it with, in your hands. I'll keep writing letters to you. And when I'm ready, will you please let my sponsor know? Do you know the very next morning that I said those words? I was talking to my sponsor. I was not talking about the letter writing. Just, I don't know what I was talking about. And she just said to me, something's changed. I don't know what it is, but I can hear it. I can hear the surrender. I think you're ready. I think we're ready to move on to step four, Sally. Let's go. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for the questions. And who else this morning? Star one to unmute. This is Paula. Paula, go ahead. I want to say thank you. Thank you for, you know, we often say the big book comes alive. The big book comes alive as we read it and we live it. And it was so evident in what we shared today, and I just want to say thank you. You know, we often read the steps, but to hear how somebody walked and lived through the steps. And, you know, often they say, well, where is God in all this? Where is God not? Every step, God. But I wanted to just share, as as so was so beautifully uh, shared so often, pages in the big book. And as I was listening to the story, Sally, um, Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect, the experience is a thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. Thank you. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. 
And here again, as I was hearing, this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should only be too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Mm-hmm. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the God, thought that in God's hand, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. I see that run in parallel with your story, and I say thank you. And with that, I do pass. Thank you. Anyone else with questions? Questions regarding anything that Sally shared with us this morning? Anything regarding the program of recovery? Questions, please. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Melanie. Melanie, go ahead. Hi. Hi, Sally. Thank you for giving so much of yourself today. In my journey with listening to you, I certainly was able to follow just a a picture-perfect view um, somewhat of myself and certainly that of a co-compulsive overeater, and I loved identifying in with what you were sharing, and it was quite intimate, and I appreciate you for doing that for me. Thank you so much. My question is, uh, is about... The um, I'm a visual person, and you talked about working with um, your sponsees from the front cover to page 196, and that um, when you came to the fourth step, you split off and did some you know, personal individual work with them. I never quite understand or have gotten a real picture on what that means to work with them. Um, what does that look like for you? Is it just simply reading the book with them or to them, or what does the work look like? Thank you. Oh, thank you, Melanie. Thank you for the question. Um, Melanie, what it looks like is um, we together, um, we well, first of all, they met my expectations, which was, uh, you know, heavy duty. They had to read the book. They had to read it alone first. And then, and one of them read it in 10 days, as I did, and the other read it in two weeks. And um, so we came together. I usually make the phone call because um, you have to have, one phone call has to reach out to two um, in order to have that um, phone call start. And so I called them. And uh, we started reading. We, I had I have one of them read two paragraphs, and then I share on the paragraphs that we read from my from my knowledge, from my writings in my book. Then I have the next one read two paragraphs, and I share on the par- I share again. All they're doing on the first page and uh, the second page of the you know the pages that are in front of them before we turn a page, I should say. If we're going to turn a page, I stop at the bottom of the page, and I will say to them. Do either of you have something you would like to share about what you read? Anything you'd like to add? And then they take turns adding to what they just read. Or sometimes they'll say, no, I have nothing to add, and we'll keep going. One will read two paragraphs. I will share. I will read through it, share the, the, the highlights, the important parts. Then the next person will read two paragraphs, and then I will share. And as we again reach the, the bottom of the second page when the book is open, I will ask them, would, any, would either of you like to share anything? Sometimes it's a powerful paragraph. I don't go the whole two pages. I'll just read. I'll have them read one paragraph, and I'll share, and then I'll ask them, how do you feel about what we just read? And then they'll share. And so right now we're at the part where we really are reading all the way through. Um, sometimes I give them little assignments based on what we say, on what's being said to each other. 
Um, but we will just be reading until we reach step four. Once we read step four, or unless, you know, unless we get a little before step four and we, you know, it's indicated that, I, you know, I sense or they even, you know, give me an indication that they would like to have that privacy. And we'll stop before step four, maybe a few pages. But I'm, you know, we're doing this together. It's the first time I've done it like this. And um, my hope is that rather than, because there are so many people who need sponsors, my feeling is that when I'm reading which I, I I feel very strongly about reading line by line, you know, word by word, very, very slowly. I'd like to have two people have the benefit of hearing what I've learned in this last year of becoming recovered and being recovered. And um, they both indicate that they're learning a lot through this process. So um, I will trust the process and see what happens. You know, I'm not finished with it yet, so I can't tell you that um, it worked. I am just confident that... Um, I'm trusting the process. Thank you very much, Sally. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie, for the question. Who else this morning with a question for Sally? Good morning. Good morning. This is Du. Hey, Du, go ahead. Good morning, Sally. Hi, Du. Good morning. Thank you so much. I love your experience. Um, I, I remember a few months ago going and meeting you in person, and what a transformation! Wow! I just all I have to say is wow. But um, I, I did have a question. Um, when you went through the process, and I know I hear different um, uh, different ways of doing this, um, but I just wanted to know what what was your way. Um, I know that some sponsors say when they get to the ninth step that they can start sponsoring people. And then other sponsor will say that you need to go through the twelve, the actual twelve steps before you start sponsoring. And I was wondering, what was your experience on that? Well, um, let me be very clear. This is only my opinion. I'm not sure that the book. I don't have the answer to whether or not the book is very clear about when it's appropriate to be a sponsor. My own personal um, opinion on this, and what I say is. I'm very, very clear with my sponsees, all all of them, that they should not and I will not be happy to find out that they are sponsoring anyone right now because I do believe that we're sick until we do reach recovered. Even if we're abstinent, I know that because I had those five years of back-to-back abstinence where I was white-knuckling it. I was still suffering with the physical allergy and the mental obsession was ever with me all through even those five years of abstinence. Abstinence does not equal recovered. So first of all, let me say that if you're working the steps, it's my opinion, you should not be sponsoring anyone until you finish step nine. When you finish step nine, you enter into this part of step 10. And and I hate to see people dip themselves out of really becoming um, Developing the new life that we're going to live in step 10, 11, and 12. There's a, there's a time frame there of a couple of weeks where you really need to develop a pattern of how you're going to utilize and, and set into motion what we're taught in steps 10, 11, and 12 and how we're going to live our daily life. It's a changed life. And so for myself, I would probably say it's individual that the sponsee who has finished going through step nine needs to go to their sponsor and say do you think i'm ready to sponsor if that sponsor says yes i'd like you to start sponsoring then by all means 
start sponsoring, I would just have a little caveat here would be that you might want to pray because, again, page 98 is teaching me that my dependence, all of my answers come from my higher power, not my sponsor, not me, my higher power. So before I make the decision, I do speak with my sponsor on any important decision. I will go to my higher power and ask, what do you think? Am I ready? And that's what it really boils down to. Am I ready to give? And let me say, we shouldn't rush into giving because there are so many people that need, but we shouldn't wait because there are so many people who need. Thank you. Thank you, Du. Thank you so much, Sally. Any other questions this morning? This is Sharon. Sharon, your turn. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much, Sally, for your share, and I just really appreciate your experience. It was, it was um, truly you have a message to share. I have a question. On you talked about the the legs. Your I I love the story of the legs and Bill's story, and I hadn't heard uh, someone equate it to. A section in the book where they identify what their legs are. And I got one of them, which was acceptance. What was your other one? And could you just elaborate on those two? I'd appreciate that. Oh, sure. Thank you for the question. Um, I just want to be clear that I don't know that these are, this has anything to do with the legs in Bill's story. I, I certainly do not want to um, push him over and um, and add anything to anything that Bill has um, so um has spoken with such inspiration. But I will say that for myself, I, I live these these two principles that are found on page 420 on the bottom of the page. And um, I'm not going to read it again, but there is something else there on that page that I think is very valuable, and I, I stopped myself because of time, and perhaps I, I should go back to that. The first thing I said was that I live by acceptance now, and I make it a principle that I carry very, very closely in my thinking throughout my day. The other was, my other leg is surrendering the outcomes. This little tiny idiom, surrendering the outcome, has become monumental in my mind. As I go through my day, I often am confronted with what's going to happen, what's going to happen. I'm not sure about that. What will happen then? And that sentence, surrender the outcome, is just my way of just giving it to God. It's another way for me to say, thy will, not mine, be done. It equals, if you will, thy will, not mine, be done. Um, In this uh, chapter 420, he he talks about, uh, I can't quite figure out where he says this, but um, take one second to see if I can locate it. Um, I can watch here here on page 120. The higher my expectations of Max and the other people are, the lower is my serenity. I can watch my serenity. I can watch, sorry. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectation. This expectations is equal to acceptance. But then my rights try to move in, and they too can force my serenity level down. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, my emotional sobriety? And when I place more value on my serenity and sobriety than anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level. You know, he goes on to saying this, this one sentence, 
down at the bottom. Rather, I do whatever is in front of me to be done, and I leave the results up to him, however it turns out. That's God's will for me. And he talks, you know, in these paragraphs about the fact that if I fight my my life, if, I, if I'm not happy with my life, I don't know where this is. I'm sure you guys can figure this out. But it says it somewhere in here. If I'm not happy with my life, then I'm complaining about my God. So whatever comes to me, and I have had to live this very, very real this week in my life, I have really felt that God has put me on the spot to say, you're going to be a hypocrite or you can really live this. Whatever he gives me, whatever comes my way, no matter how I don't like it, and there are lots of things I don't like, I have to trust. I choose to trust. He knows, and it's what's best for me. And I will see that in the end. I will surrender the outcome. That's my answer. Thank you, Sharon, for the question. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Amanda Sam. I didn't catch names. Try again, please. Candace N. Candace. Okay, let's go, Candace. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Sally, for your uh, experience, strength, and hope. I have a question about how did you uh, clean house with God in between your three sponsors? Thank you. How did I clean house with God in between my three sponsors? Yes, you said uh, that's on page 98, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man. Then he can get okay. well regardless of anyone. The only okay. thing is God and clean house. I did nothing okay. in between. Just let me be very clear that I did nothing in between my three sponsors. Nothing was accomplished in between mm-hmm. my three sponsors. What I did do, with my first sponsor, I did start step four but unfortunately went back to visit my kids and flew back into the food. And so we started again. We started step four again. We did it the way the big book says in the columns. And again, I went to visit my kids and I flew back into the food. Then um, to no fault of my sponsor, my very precious sponsor, my second sponsor, um, we, we we walked through these steps just exactly the way the book says it. We treated this book like it was our instruction manual, like I was in the midst of taking a master's level college course on becoming recovered. When we reached the end of step five, I drove all the way to Pennsylvania to give her my step five. I spent two days with her at her home. Giving her my step five was just a few hours, but we had a chance to meet and and to um, visit with each other. When I finished, We read that paragraph right after step five where we stop, we think, we pray, we ask God, have I left anything out? We did it exactly the way the book prescribes. And I finished all of these steps. It took me nine months. It took me nine months because I spent about a month writing letters and getting unblocked. It took me nine months because I spent about two months of writing um, letters of amends and uh, all the kickbacks and all the rewrites and, um, and the actual delivering of all those letters. And it took me about nine months. I wish it didn't. And I, I will not let that happen to my sponsors, my sponsees rather. Um, 
if there's anything I can do about it, I will do my best to keep that from happening because I don't think that's the best way. But that was the way that it had to be for me, and it did have to be that way for me. When I finished working the steps, the ninth step, with that sponsor and she came to me, she called me and said, I, I do too much traveling, I just feel a lot of pressure and I just feel like I, I must give you, you must go and get another sponsor so that you can continue on your growth and not let it be that I'm just traveling so much you don't have the opportunity to. And so she she did, I hate to use the word dropped because I never, I did not, I never felt dropped. Uh, I felt loved and cared for. And so I did get a third sponsor and the third sponsor that I have is a tremendous gift from God to me and has been working with me since that day, um, has been reading with me for step 10, step 11, step 12. We've been working very hard reading together on a weekly basis. I have continued to go, and we just pretty much um, are going to continue. I don't think she's disappearing anytime soon, and we'll continue to work together probably at this point because I've finished the steps. We'll be working, um, reading together once a week, and um, that's, how, that's how I worked it. I hope that answers your question. But let me be clear, there was no working any steps between sponsors. It was me, stop, short, get, sponsor, go. Thank you. Thank you, Candice. Anyone else this morning with a question for Sally regarding program of recovery, anything that, regarding her story of transformation? Hi, this is Steve. Good morning, reader. I just want to thank you, Sally, for your sharing, and I seem to constantly need and love it when I'm reminded to trust God. I I just need to hear it all the time. I don't know where that's at, but I love it. Thank you for your sharing and reminding me to let go and, and let God. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Sally. Thank this you, is Steve. Gray in Arizona. Your name again, Gray? please, Grace? It's Gray, Leia, C-R-A-Y. Okay, well, good morning, and please go ahead with your question. Thank you so much. Um, Sally, I, I think I have spoken to you once on the phone and um, I recently did get, or, or um, here in Arizona, find a recovered sponsor to work the steps with through the big book. Um, the particular way that this sponsor um, works through the big book um, actually happens over, I know many of you are probably thinking, oh my goodness, um, is over a, a week's period. And the more that I listen to you and that I've listened to a vision for you, I'm thinking, you know, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I hit the high points, and I've certainly gained a lot from that, but I feel like that's probably not enough. I wanted to get your opinion and anyone else that wanted to chime in on that. I feel like I need to start over, actually. Well, Gray, first of all, Gray, thank you for, um, thank you for your question, and thank you for taking a moment to um, come on the line. I would just say this. Every sponsor in, who's recovered, um, every sponsor who's who's out there um, is going to do it their own way. Um, the way that I do it is a long way of doing it. It probably, because I'm reading with my sponsees line by line 
and we're, I spend an hour three times a week with each of my sponsees, have an hour of me. And then I have them, they're free to call me if they need me at other times to talk on a personal level because when we get together to read, we don't talk. We're getting together to work. If they want to talk to me, they can call me at another time. Um, my feeling is that I've, I've met other people who are walking people through the steps at all different levels of speeds. And all I can say is you have a sponsor, she's recovered, she's walking you through in a week, do the week. If you find at the end of the week you feel like you're hungry for anything, if you have, you know, I have really come to see, and I, and I don't mean to negate the big book, I think it really goes along with the big book, I have come to see this hunger in me as a spiritual hunger. And when I'm hungry, which I don't have that experience, I haven't had that experience for quite a long time. When I was hungry, I believed that I was really spiritually hungry. And instead of going to the solution, the right solution, my higher power, I was turning to the food, the masks, the armor maker, the, um, the numbing that came with the food. So I just would say if you, at the end of the week, after working with that person, you find yourself in any place where you feel you're hungry, where you feel like you're struggling or you, you eat something and you're, you're feeling like your body just lit up like a light bulb and you know in your heart, uh, you know, that you're, you, you're putting things into your body that are not, you know, that's going to trigger the allergy, then you, of course, have to look at that. You, you know, you may want to get another recovered sponsor, but I personally, I, I don't feel, I don't think it's fair for me, and, and I think all of us as recovered sponsors, um, I think we have a politeness about us that we don't step on the toes of our fellows. If my, if my dear precious friend who is recovered is sponsoring in a different way than me and she's able to bring that person through in four weeks and she feels that she's going to skip over certain things um, that it's not necessary to read all that and just have the, you know, the, the sponsee read it themselves, I am not going to judge her. Um, and if the, if the person comes to the place that they're recovered and it works, that's really what matters. So I, 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 can't, I can't honestly say that um, I don't have an answer to your question, Gray. I, I just would say, well, finish the week, see how you feel. If you feel like you need more, you haven't really done it, you haven't really accomplished, you know, you haven't reached the land of recovered, then um, you may want to get another sponsor. Start again. Thank you so much, Sally. That very, very much um, answers my question. Thank you again, and thank you for... Um, your eloquent share this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Gray. Anyone else? Questions for Sally? Hi, Sally. Hello. Your name? Hi, this is Mary Lou, compulsive eater. Go ahead, Mary Lou, with your question. Hi, Sally. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, now that you are recovered, I wanted to ask you, are you still calling in um, your food? No, I don't call my food in. But I'll be honest with you, if anything changes, I would call my sponsor. I do speak to my sponsor um, on a regular basis. Um, I don't call my food in anymore. My food is very clean. Um, it's very I hate to use the word organized, but it really is organized. I know exactly what my food is for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. I have a mid-afternoon 
very tiny mid-afternoon snack that just to lift my blood sugar because I do have hypoglycemia at times. Um, and I do have an optional evening uh, thing, but I, I'm not going to go into any of the food. i just say, at this point, no, I don't have to um, call my sponsor and give her my food. I do, however, still weigh and measure my food because I do feel that it gives me freedom. And I have found that it gives me great peace of mind to weigh and measure my food. I've got an incredible stack of measuring cups, and I pretty much eat my breakfast, lunch, dinner out of my measuring cups, and I have a scale that I travel with um, that I use, and um, I just find there's a great freedom in measuring. That's what has really um, been a blessing to me. I don't see that as, um, I don't see it as anything but a blessing. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mary Lou. Hi, this is Nancy. Nancy, your turn. Thank you. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for sharing um, your story and uh, being such an inspiration to so many of us. Um, My question is, what do you do on a regular basis now um, as far as your writing? Do you have homework that your sponsor gives you? Um, do you have readings that she may give to you? What do you do as far as the, that that tool, the writing and literature? Okay, thank you for the question, Nancy. I I just had to kind of giggle when you said the word. You have homework. I just felt the the hair on the back of my head just stand up. <laughs> <laughs> that was from years of being in uh, college and going to school for um, a number of reasons. Um, the thought of homework, homework. Oh. Um, no, do I have homework? I would say no. What I do have is what what I do regularly is um, I do have um, I'm, as far as what I do with my sponsor. I'll just keep it that way, okay? My sponsor and I work together. Uh, we read together on a weekly basis. Um, she'll often send me a text, read this page. Um, she will call me randomly on the phone to chat with me about. Oh, I just found this fabulous page. I'll tell you. Um, I just it was very interesting that yesterday in the morning I woke up and I was praying while I was still laying in my bed. I was praying and I had this thought come to my prayer of, you know, God, what really makes me worried is that a lot of these things I'm asking you about are my mistakes that I've made that I'm asking you to fix. It doesn't really seem fair to me to ask you to fix this because I did this. I made a mistake. And I need you to fix it. And you know that she called me and she said, I want you to read this page. And it was that page that she read um, in the back of the book a little bit earlier. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Paula, there goes your, your anonymity. <laughs> um, Paula was just sharing about this, um, this page that starts with, uh, with Ford. And in that, it talks about our mistakes specifically. I find that when I pray, God really does address my prayers if I will just come to him with an honest heart and talk to him, he never fails me. He truly does come with answers. So as far as my homework goes, my homework is that I do pray throughout my day. My homework is that I do a step 11 at night. Uh, my homework is I do, I do work step 10 throughout my day. Moments throughout my day, I'll stop and send a text to my sponsor. Um, I need to make an amends to blah, blah, blah. Um, or I will tell my sponsor, I remembered something yesterday that was upsetting. I would love to talk about it with you. That's part of my step four inventory. Um, I don't live with stuff happening. I live one day at a time. This is the day. 
that I'm living in. I will carve this day into a gorgeous statue of a day that I can look back on as a fabulous day. That is the lifestyle that we have as recovered because we can truly finally live because we put the food down and we are turning instead to a higher power who is gracious and generous. That's all I can say about my homework. (laughs) That's a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Anyone else before we wrap up this morning with questions for Sally? Yes. This is Mary Lee in California. I'd like to ask her about um, meditation. Um, it doesn't say prayer or meditation. It says prayer and meditation. And um, does she have a routine for meditation? Okay, thank you. appreciate that question. Yes, I have been. This has been something I have been developing, um, prayer and meditation. Um, I have been, um, upon awakening, I have been praying. I have been, for 10 minutes, I actually have been setting my, my phone as a timer. I've been setting my phone as a timer for prayer. And then I've been reading my morning devotionals for about 10 minutes. And then I stop and I set the timer for meditation. And I set it for 10 minutes and I meditate. And I, I find often that the first part of my meditation, I'm just creating a to-do list because I can't seem to quiet my thoughts. And so I'm interrupted repeatedly with writing down this list that comes to me in my mind of, oh, I need to do that. Oh, I should do that. And so I end up setting the timer again for my meditation. And I start again with another 10 minutes. And the second 10 minutes, I go to my higher power um, and I usually will cry. I often will just spend time on my knees crying with my higher power at the second 10 minutes of my meditation. I reset my clock for the third set of meditation. It doesn't have to be like this every single day, but some days that's what it's like. The third time I go to my higher power and meditate for 10 more minutes, I will often find that I finally connect with my higher power and I visualize in my mind opening up these throne room doors and walking into an empty room, and only my higher power is there. And he is saying as I walk in, oh, goody, here comes my Sally. And he doesn't sit on his chair. He comes down and sits on a step next to me and puts his arm around me. And he listens as I talk to him and cry to him and tell him everything. And then he lifts my face and he tells me, this is truly what happens. You are mine. And I walk away at peace knowing who I am because that's where this program has led me, not just to an understanding of the solution, but to my own identity. I am his. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Mary Lee, for the question. Anyone else this morning questions for Sally? Leah? Yes. Hi, it's Mary Lou again. The meditation, I have a question about the meditation that she just um, said. Go ahead. Sally, uh, during the meditation when you, like I was trying to write down the part about um, when he is sitting on, he's not sitting on a chair, he comes down and sits next to you. Are you like meditating, visualizing that? And when he says, I got a lump in my throat, 
and that's a sign that I want to do this thing because when he looks at you and says, or she, whatever your higher power is, um, he says, you are mine. Do you visualize that in your meditation as your eyes are closed? Yes, yes I, my, my mind, my eyes are closed. Mm-hmm. I sit very quietly. Mm-hmm. And um, my eyes are closed, and I visualize walking up to very big, heavy-duty doors. And I push the doors open, and when I push the doors open, I see my higher power sitting on a throne, alone, in a big room. And I picture him saying, here comes my Sally. And I run to him. Some days I don't run, but most days I run to him. And he stands up. He greets me. He hugs me. We sit down together on these two steps that are underneath his throne. This is how I picture it. And he puts his arm around me and we talk. And often my head is down. Often I have feelings of shame. Often I have feelings of sadness about things that are going on. And what I see in my mind's eye is that he takes his hands and he puts them on my face and he lifts my chin and he has me look in his eyes. And I picture this, and he looks me in the eyes and he says, you are mine. And I walk away thinking, I am his. What do I have to fear if I would just have my self-reliance be dead? Be dead. Be gone. Because I have none. It doesn't work. It never worked. But instead, my reliance is on him. My dependence is on him. It took me. It took me 9, 10, 11 months to get to that moment where I could have this relationship with my higher power. This is my relationship, as page 29 talks about. We each develop our own. This is how I have developed mine. Does that answer your question, Mary Lou? Yes, it does. And um, it's just very, very beautiful. And um, I want to thank you for that. And anyway... Thank you. It's it's actually very close to something called the Ignatian exercises, which is where you visualize during meditation and prayer. You visualize it's it's done been done for centuries, but the, that one in particular is very healing. And I want to thank you for sharing a very intimate prayer. And and it, I was doing it while you were saying it, and I saw. I mean, it affected my heart, and to know that I am His and um, loved by Him. And I just want to thank you for that. It really touched me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Mary Lou. Anyone else this morning before we bid farewell? This is Philomena. Philomena, go ahead with a question. I just want to thank. I just want to thank Sally. I don't think there's a dry eye here right now, and I just want to thank her for. Um, her experience, strength, and hope. And uh, it was just very spiritual. And I just want to thank her for taking the time to share what uh, her last year has been. And God bless you. Thank you. And, yes, we thank you, Sally, for the time and energy you spent with us this morning, sharing your personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, sharing your transformation with us. I will close the meeting this morning with the way a vision for you always closes its meetings and that's from page 164.
a vision for you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.